talk about the management of preterm labor. If you're um, worried about the prediction or prevention of spontaneous preterm birth, that was a past episode dating back to September of 2023. You're listening to the OB-GYNO Wino podcast. My other podcast is the Holistic OB-GYN, where I do a lot of interviews with interesting people. And it goes beyond the basic just let's look at the literature and let's do that. It gets into the deeply spiritual, mental, and emotional aspects of birth uh, and pregnancy and conception and parenting and lifestyle um, way beyond what they teach in the textbooks, although we get into that stuff too. But that to me is kind of the elementary kind of stuff. And I actually think that um, this podcast is pretty elementary. Um, the only difference here it, when we talk about you know this practice bulletin, which by the way is 171, it was published back in October of 2016, this management of preterm labor, this is pretty elementary as well. This is kind of like the very, very bare minimum of what the consensus, so to speak, of experts at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists uh, think that we as practitioners should know is the standard of care in North America, but frankly, ACOG's guidelines get adopted eventually worldwide in, in many regards. Not always, but many regards. So if you're listening, thank you for being here. Thank you for giving me a little bit of your time. The, the idea here is to summarize the management of preterm labor, um, meaning we've definitely got labor happening. What can we do in order to make sure mom and baby are doing as well as possible through a preterm birth and into the early days of childhood? So. Thank you for listening. Uh, as always, we always pair a wine. This one is a 2020 Pinot Noir from Faveli Vineyards. It's a French wine with uh, a Pinot Noir varietal from a specific part of France that makes it a very good digestive. Um, it's also a very expensive bottle. I um, was gifted a glass or two of this when I was recently at a birth in Albany. Um, I wouldn't normally spend, you know, 200 some dollars on a bottle of wine. I never would. And, uh, but once in a while, it's nice to taste <laughs> what that, what that, uh, what $250 will get you in a bottle of wine. But anyways, to each their own. Your five pearls. Number one, preterm labor carries significant risks to the newborn. The more premature, the worse the outcomes. Two, given the high risk for long-term morbidity in extremely premature infants focusing on comfort as opposed to aggressive resuscitation at time of birth is reasonable through a shared medical decision-making process. We'll talk about that more, what that means. Corticosteroids, number three, can improve outcomes for newborns at risk of preterm birth at less than 34 weeks and sometimes as late as 36 weeks and five days if delivery is anticipated within the next seven days. Number four, latency antibiotics can improve outcomes for newborns in the setting of PPROM. That's premature pre-labor rupture of membranes at less than 34 weeks. And then number five, magnesium sulfate can improve outcomes for newborns at risk of preterm birth at less than 32 weeks gestation. We'll talk about each of those interventions. But for starters, let's do some background. I'm around 10% around of babies are born before 37 weeks, which is the uh, first mark based on your this random guest state as to when you are term, meaning babies born before 37 weeks are considered preterm and there are implications in future pregnancies. Please see the other practice bulletin uh, summary I did on this very podcast if you want to know more about prevention. So why are we concerned? 
preterm babies, again, before 37 weeks, have a high risk of neonatal mortality, respiratory distress, sepsis, intracranial bleeding, and long-term issues like neurodevelopmental challenges. It goes without saying that preterm babies are more likely to end up in the NICU. My cutoff for home birth is roughly 36 weeks if I'm very, very certain of dates, but even that would give me pause in a variety of circumstances. So very few exceptions. Um, to that rule. Um, however, sometimes babies come at home, you know, way early, which is why it's still important for us as practitioners to just be aware of, of the sort of necessity sometimes to transfer babies. On the other hand, sometimes babies come out at 35 weeks and they do just fine. It really, really depends on the circumstances. So there's no hard and fast rules, despite what these guidelines might suggest. Um, preterm labor defined Right. There's one thing to have like preterm contractions, right? But if the cervix isn't changing, then you're not in labor. So cervical dilation greater than or equal to two centimeters between 20 weeks and 36 weeks and six days is by definition preterm labor when it's a, when it accompanies regular painful uterine contractions. However, sometimes we, we will have painless cervical dilation, which is by definition cervical insufficiency, what used to be called cervical incompetence. It was a nice change of language there, if I do say so myself. There's no incompetence here. It's just what it is. Less than 10% of women who present that meet these criteria, though, the regular uterine contractions with cervical dilation will actually deliver within seven days, which is good. That's a good sign. Good thing. So if a, a woman presents to you with a contraction pattern, um, there's a full workup that can be done. Generally, um, especially if they report that maybe they've been leaking fluid, a speculum exam is warranted. You want to use a sterile speculum because now that the waters are opened, you do have the potential for introducing bacteria up in there. We'll go into chorioamnionitis in another lesson. While you're down there, you can collect a swab and check um, to see if there's any ferning on microscope, which uh, of course would be sort of the definition of, of, of amniotic fluid, pathognomonic for amniotic fluid. You can also collect a fetal fibronectin and or get an endovaginal ultrasound, all in that same speculum exam. The utility of ultrasound and fetal fibronectin, FFN, haven't been validated through randomized control trials, but there is observational data that suggests that it may be helpful in identifying patients truly at risk for preterm birth. It's important to remember that if FFN alone is negative, that's a pretty, a pretty good negative predictive value, but it is poorly predictive of preterm birth. So you have to consider the whole clinical picture. What I mean by that is if FFN is negative, great. You're in good shape for at least seven days based on what we think we know from observational data. If it's positive, then you need to do a much more in-depth workup to make sure you're not missing something. But there's a variety of things that can cause an FFN to be positive. Um, one thing I haven't mentioned is a nitrazine swab. If you don't have a microscope, nitrazine can turn that dark blue, super, super alkaline um, in the setting of rupture of membranes. But it can also change with blood, with, with other types of mucus, with semen, um, urine. Those types of things can also can, can make a nitrazine a little bit less clear. So. If it looks like she's in labor, especially if she's greater than uh, 32 weeks, you can also do a digital exam um, if she's having those painful contractions, especially if there's some blood in the cervical mucus. Um, as I mentioned, though, prevention of preterm labor is covered in a different episode. So when should we, we be worried about preterm delivery? 
if she's having consistent regular contractions, and you know the difference there between that and Braxton Hicks, what I say about real labor contractions is that it will it will require your entire focus to get through a contraction. If it's 60 to 90 seconds, that's probably a real contraction. It's not Braxton Hicks, but you can always, you know, hydrate and have a big meal and find a nice quiet room to, you know, room to rest in and and manage your stress a little bit. And that in Braxton case of Braxton Hicks and not true labor would generally get it to go away. And about 30% of of women who present with preterm prodromal labor and that means They've got maybe some discharge. They're like, I think I lost my mucus bug, right? They're also having painful uterine contractions. Sometimes it's only the contractions. In 30% of women, that will cease spontaneously, even if it feels like real contractions. Only about 50% of patients admitted for preterm labor concerns will end up delivering at term. So um, be judicious, be thoughtful. Um, that also means 50% of, of women who present with preterm labor won't deliver term. So we have to be very, very thoughtful about this and provide as much information and insights as we can um, as uh, relative experts in this process who've seen a lot of these cases to really help uh, make, you know, thorough, do thorough counseling and make reasonable recommendations. About 20% of women who present with preterm contractions without cervical dilation will deliver before 37 weeks. That's good. With it, about less, but less than five percent will deliver within two weeks of presentation. So that gives us plenty of time to get everything on board that may give that baby a shot, and including, you know, realizing that if this baby comes, let's say, before thirty-six weeks, especially, there's probably going to need you're probably going to need higher-level NICU, and therefore, um, and what I mean by that is not every hospital has a NICU, but you may need a NICU, and therefore, find, having a an exit strategy to get to a hospital that does have a a good NICU unit may be, you know, a part of the counseling because this is not what you probably anticipated, whether you're a midwife listening or a, a patient listening. This is probably not what you expected to happen. So there we go. Now, there's a table in the practice bulletin. It says common tocolytic agents. There are things like calcium channel blockers, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like indomethacin, which can cause a premature closure of the ductus arteriosus, which you know, changes the fluid dynamics in that baby's cardiovascular system. Um, indomethacin and uh, things like nifedipine can take away the bite of preterm contractions, but it doesn't necessarily, we can't count on it to make it go away. Two other medications that are listed are beta-adrenergic receptor agonists like terbutaline and magnesium sulfate. Terbutaline definitely stops contractions, but it has a short onset, short offset, and then the contractions come back. We use this in labor and delivery units all the time. It's an injection. Magnesium sulfate does have a side effect of, of decreasing the intensity of uterine contractions and sometimes helping them fizz out, fizzle out all alone, but it also can depress the baby. It makes you feel like you're in a drunken stupor. We don't just throw around magnesium sulfate, which in this case, it's they're describing an infusion of magnesium sulfate. I have not found too much benefit of taking oral magnesium in order to you know, uh, sustain a pregnancy when preterm labor is actually happening. But take a look at that table. It'll show you, um, you know, some of the uh, adverse effects for mom, for baby, and the contraindications for each of those. So as I've mentioned, we can't stop preterm labor. Um, Unless a person is going to give, you know, have a baby anyways, we can use certain tocolytics in order to stop their contractions to give the baby a little break. We use terbutaline, for example, to squelch contractions for a 15 to 20 minute period. 
in order for the baby to get a recovery, you know, have some recovery time. Um, whenever, you know, the uterus is contracting too much and baby's, you know, fetal heart rate tracing is starting to show changes. Um, we generally consider tocolytic therapy for preterm labor only to be effective for about 48 hours, which is good. It just so happens to be a long enough time to buy you, uh, uh, to afford you the time to get corticosteroids on board if they're indicated. Before uh, or after 34 weeks, ACOG does not recommend tocolysis. It means that means after 34 weeks, let's just let this thing proceed and we will deal with the consequences of a preterm baby. I'm just reporting what ACOG is recommending in their practice guideline. Because 30% of preterm labor, labor will resolve without any intervention, even those who have advanced cervical dilation, which is, again, two or more centimeters dilation at less than 34 weeks, they can usually be generally observed without tocolytics, and particularly so if no cervical dilation is found. This means that we shouldn't just automatically start magnesium sulfate infusions or start cranking up the terbutaline because there are adverse effects to being on these medications for a, a prolonged period of time. So we only use those when we absolutely need to buy more time in order to get things like steroids on board. And ACOG is only recommending any tocolysis um, uh, if, if preterm labor is happening before 34 weeks, which again, there are risks and benefits to all of these things. So, you know, counsel wisely. Um, let's see. Some contraindications to tocolysis is if the baby has died, if there's a lethal fetal anomaly, anomaly, <laughs> amolony, um, if there's non-reassuring fetal status. Um, that's a little bit arguable because what, what they're saying there is not in the setting of like an induction or something where I mentioned how terbutaline is used. If the baby seems to be struggling inside the uterus, we want to proceed with birth. So we don't want to tocalize um, just to buy time for steroids if the baby's already struggling. That's what that means. If there's maternal bleeding with hemodynamic instability, meaning changes to heart rate, uh, respiratory uh, rates, or uh, especially blood pressure, chorioamnionitis, don't tocalize. We gotta get that, that infection cleared up through birth. Preterm, premature rupture, pre-labor. <laughs> Wait, we used to call it premature. Preterm, pre-labor rupture of membranes. Um, ACOG does not recommending tocalizing. Um, although in some circumstances, the uh, a small leak can reseal after time. We talk about this quite a bit in the born-free method. And then any other maternal contraindications to tocolysis, which is agent-specific. Um, magnesium sulfate, for example, is contraindicated in women who have myasthenia gravis. It can, it can precipitate a worsening or a flaring up of their MG. So there you go. What is the cutoff for viability? This is really where... Um, <laughs> Conversations can get very, very hard. Another topic we cover at length in the Born Free Method. And I'm in a unique position to talk about this because I'm also a palliative care specialist. So, you know, I'm the one that was called in often for like the 23 and five days, you know, preterm labor and the baby's breach. And so there's some very, very hard decision making to be made there, which is not our job. It's just our job to counsel on risks, benefits, alternatives to vaginal birth versus C-section versus toc you know, tocolysis um, to all of the other interventions like the things that um, we're going to talk about here um, going forward. But at less than 20 weeks, this is considered pre-viable. So we're not going to do any intervention. At 23 to roughly 26 weeks, this is like the peri-viable period. There's an NICHD calculator that I have linked. Um, in the show notes, which by the way, if you want the comprehensive notes for this, you can um, 
you can go to Patreon. I'll link it in the podcast description and you can pay five bucks a month. You get access to all of my notes and summaries, including all the graphics and tables and charts and a bunch of other stuff linked, including the National Institute of Child Health and Development's Health and Human Development um, calculator, which really will give you the odds of survival um, at these peri-viable times. This can help to guide delivery and management um, planning, um, especially in the hospital. These babies are not um, going to be comfortably born at home unless there is no plan to intervene when the baby emerges. I think it's important to remind everybody that just because we can resuscitate a baby does not mean that we should. Delivery of a peri-viable newborn must include risks and benefits of delivery methods to mom and the risks and benefits of preterm delivery and resuscitation to the newborn. Babies born at 24 weeks, 25 weeks, are almost certainly going to have a long-term disability, like almost without a doubt. So it doesn't mean we shouldn't intervene. It doesn't mean that we're playing God. It just means that an option is to not resuscitate and love on the baby and provide comfort in other ways. That is not a failure as birth workers, especially if, let's say, this is a baby that has some sort of chromosomal anomaly or some sort of structural issue, right? So let's talk a little bit about corticosteroids. This... um, injection, which is generally going to be done over two days. It can either be dexamethasone in uh, Q12-hour increments for four doses or betamethasone in Q24-hour increments for two doses. Um, They work by stimulating the development of alveoli in the premature fetal lungs in order to optimize the likelihood that they're going to be able to transition in a healthful way, um, in an independent way, to the external environment. there's very little controversy as to whether or not this can improve outcomes. It absolutely is one of the greatest interventions that we can offer preterm babies. I'd recommend a single course, ACOG agrees, if, patient, if the patient presents with preterm labor or if there's a need for delivery due to maternal health con- uh, concerns like early onset severe preeclampsia. Um, and this, this goes for any babies that are going to be born between 23 and 30 three weeks and six days. Um, When they present, if you anticipate they're going to give birth within seven days, remember not everybody will, then you can give the steroids. That's when I would recommend doing it. You can repeat the course if more than two weeks have passed after the first course, and you can recommend a single course between 34 weeks and 36 weeks and five days. This is the um, late preterm indication for corticosteroids for babies. But you're only going to give it during that 34 to 36 week and five day mark if one, they've never had any steroids, two, membranes are intact, and three, the patient is not diabetic. And you should never delay delivery to complete the course. If the baby's coming, the baby's coming. And if mom is getting sicker due to you know early onset severe preeclampsia, we're not going to delay the delivery just to get these steroids on board. And that's important to remember. I've mentioned the two courses. Betamethasone is a 12 milligram IMQ24 for two doses. Dexamethasone, six milligram IMQ12 hours for four doses is a less common but equally efficacious uh, regimen. Should I mag or should I not? Magnesium sulfates um, can be very, very helpful in stabilizing the baby's brain if the baby is going to be born, especially before 32 weeks. It is not a reliable tocolytic agent, but it does have that as a, a side effect. 
um, if a woman is on mag for fetal protection, for fetal protection, adding on a tocolytic agent can still be considered, but be careful with the beta agonists and calcium channel blockers. They work synergistically with magnesium sulfate, so they can cause hypotension. Indomethacin would be your choice in that case. Should I recommend antibiotics? Well, when a woman presents in super early labor, latency antibiotics are helpful because it's thought that perhaps there's an insidious infection, whether or not the membranes have opened, but they're especially helpful um, um, when you have P-PROM. So it's only indicated, this latency antibiotics, if you have pre-labor or pre-term pre-labor rupture of membranes at less than 34 weeks. They have been found, uh, starting at latency antibiotics, has been found to improve interval from time of PPROM to delivery, a decreased risk of choriamnionitis, a decreased risk of neonatal infection, and a de decreased risk for respiratory distress in the newborn, meaning a lesser chance that the baby's going to need um, oxygen therapy. Um, there was a Cochrane review that looked at this, and, and that's where we're getting that from. The regimen for PPROM uh, for these latency antibiotics is two days of ampicillin, two grams IV every six hours, plus erythromycin, 250 milligrams IV, Q6 hours, then transitioning, so that was uh, two days worth, then transitioning to seven days worth, or five, I'm sorry, five days worth for a total of seven days of therapy through amoxicillin, 250 milligrams PO, Q8 hour, plus erythromycin, 333 milligrams PO, Q8 hour. Even if you don't work in the hospital, it's good to know uh, about these different regimens. Um, erythromycin and azithromycin are equally e efficacious. Um, I've asked this question for years now, but the latter is cheaper and better tolerated from a GI standpoint. So even though the regimen written in the practice bulletin is erythromycin, azithromycin is actually way cheaper and is better tolerated from a GI standpoint. Amoxicillin clavulanic acid, also known as augmentin, is associated with higher risk of neonatal necrotizing enterocolitis neck in some studies, and therefore it's not recommended, even though it has that amox name. We're not using augmentin. And if a woman is penicillin allergic, like a real allergy, not just like, oh, I get a tummy ache, azithromycin 1 gram PO times 1 at time of admission, and then do two days of cefazolin 1 gram IV, Q8 hours, followed by five days cephalex or keflex cephalexin 500 milligrams po four times daily if they have a really really severe uh, penicillin allergy get rid of the cephalosporins altogether and replace them with gentamicin clindamycin um, at 34 weeks in the setting of pprom it's prudent to recommend induction of labor uh, of, of course given um, the risks benefits and alternatives what can be done to prevent preterm delivery well we get into this uh, deeply in uh, the other episode, the other practice bulletin on um, prevention and prediction of preterm birth. But in this case, hydration, bed rest, um, nor tocolytics and asymptomatic women have been found um, to be helpful prophylaxis against preterm birth. And there's really a, a lot of harm through decreased act activity. You have a de an increased risk of VTE, um, increased bone demineralization, and general deconditioning. So bed rest is never an option. Like, that's never a thing. There's another medication called Atosaban. It's a maintenance tocolytic that isn't FDA-approved for use in the U.S., but it's out there in case you're listening from outside the United States. But frankly, if, if you end up with prodromal preterm contractions or even like some scant bleeding or something like that, hydration, bed rest, um, those things can be helpful. You know, hydrate, have a big meal, go and sit in a quiet room, and it will probably go away, especially if it's not strong enough that's causing the cervix to dilate. 
Um, what about preterm delivery in multiple gestations? There's really no data to support the benefit of steroids or mag sulfate for fetal neuroprotection in multiple gestations. Many experts, however, this is per the practice bulletin, extrapolate that benefits probably outweigh the risks. So it's certainly something I would consider if it was me and my wife with twins, I would almost certainly be doing steroids no matter what, especially if she's not diabetic. Tocolytics, in this case, the risks probably outweigh benefits in multiple gestations. Remember, a lot of these babies come preterm anyways. So, all right, that wraps it up, guys. Management of preterm labor, counsel well, do no harm, take no shit, and I'll see you next time here on the OB Got No Wine podcast. Bye.